Thanks very much um, for that. I've been asked to speak about the South African case, which I shall do. Try to say something about the negotiations, an intricate and ultimately intimate series of encounters between the African National Congress, hence ANC, and the National Party government, NP. At its height, the multi-party negotiating forum had no fewer than 26 political groupings. But in fact, it, it increasingly resolved to a bilateral encounter between ANC and NP. I'm going to speak very, very briefly about the South African case because I do want to move on and say something rather more formally comparative about the South African and Polish cases. On the South African case, I'm going to ask two basic questions. Why did the NP and the ANC enter negotiations? And secondly, what did negotiations deliver? What were the formal outcomes of two and a half years of talks? The National Party negotiated because it had, quote, run out of alternatives, because its policies, quote, had landed us in a dead end street. That was their foreign minister and the state president uh, speaking at the time. After 40 years in power, the National Party was in political, economic, and ideological crisis. The crisis had long-term roots, but was exacerbated by immediate pressures. The long-term roots included a demographic shift. Between 1960 and 1995, the um, whites in South Africa had um, started off about one in five, but by 1995, they were just over one in 10. So there's a very, very decisive demographic shift. Secondly, economic stagnation. From 1974 to 1994, GDP growth averaged about 1.5%, significantly less than population growth. And in the second half of the 80s, the economy is actually shrinking. Debt rose, inflation rose, and unemployment rose. Apartheid never recovered politically or ideologically from the challenges of the 1970s, the emergence of the black trade union movement, black consciousness as an alternative form of it, but especially the youth uprising of Soweto in June 1976. Soweto in particular had the consequence of weakening the moral base, the moral case that had been made for apartheid in terms of separate development is increasingly muffled and, in fact, largely absent after 1976. The intelligentsia deserted the National Party, clergymen, academics, journalists, and others. And most crucially, I believe, big business made it absolutely clear that they were looking for an alternative, that they were looking towards a post-apartheid political dispensation. And then the immediate pressure, and here I think very much of that decomposition um, of the party in the Polish case that Professor Sola mentioned last night. On adding to all of those uh, longer term economic, political, and ideological crises, in the second half of the 1980s, you have firstly a great rolling wave of popular mobilization and protest. Several million members of the United Democratic Front 
which later rebrands itself in 1989 as the Mass Democratic Movement. Um, mass protests, which the state meets by a series of states, in states of emergency, the arrest of 37,000 activists, and a very, very heavy crackdown with troops in the townships. This provoked an international credit squeeze. Banks re refused to roll over South African credit, not for moral disapproval, but because they increasingly saw South Africa as a bad risk. And economic sanctions, particularly um, in the United States, acquired more teeth. And then finally, in September 1989, there was a general election, and for the first time since the 1950s, the National Party won less than half of the white vote. It was shedding support to its left and right. Well, what about the ANC in exile during this period? Why did it move cautiously but definitively towards um, an acceptance of talks in the second half of the 1980s? Firstly, and probably crucially, it had invested in exile very heavily in armed struggle. About 50% of the international aid it received larger from the Soviet bloc, went into training, equipping, and running a guerrilla army. Um, but from 1986, the Soviet Union was signaling very clearly that it favored a political and not a military outcome in southern Africa. And then in 1988, the great powers, then US and USSR, brokered something called the New York Accord, which saw Cuban troops taken out of Angola, but for the ANC, Absolutely crucially, it meant the removal of their guerrillas from the camps in Angola. The military capacity of the ANC or its army, Encontro MK, had been shredded. And as the guerrilla project stalled, Mandela from within prison and the leadership from Lusaka in Zambia both began exploring the option of talking to the enemy. And from 1985, a faint whiff of negotiations was constantly in the air. 1985, November, is particularly important because the chairman of Anglo-American, South Africa's largest um, corporate conglomerate, Gavin Reilly, uh, made the first of many, many safaris um, to meet the ANC at Kenneth Kaunda's game lodge outside Lusaka. Gavin Reddy takes the top brass of the South African capitalist economy to sit down and talk to the ANC, 1985. Meetings then took place between the regime and the ANC in London, in Lusaka, and in secret. The ANC met equally discreetly with British, Soviet, Japanese, Australian, and American government officials with the result that by 1988, the Western powers broadly accepted that the ANC headed the opposition to apartheid, that it was key to any negotiated outcome, and, although it hadn't told its members yet, and that it would relinquish its armed struggle. That was the deal as far as the West was concerned. In short, an exile movement had been swept to the status of a government-in-waiting by a combination of two processes. Firstly, mass-based domestic mobilization, 
and secondly, an international solidarity movement which translated into diplomatic approval. Mandela, from inside jail, wrote to the, state, the then State President P.W. Werther in March 1989, just about when the roundtable talks were going on. He said, it is necessary in the national interest for the ANC and the government to meet urgently to negotiate an effective political settlement. So Mandela to Buerta, March 1989. 11 months later, on the 2nd of February 1990, the, the new president, de Klerk, only in office for five months, opened parliament with a famous speech in which he declared the release of all political prisoners, including Mandela, the unbanning of the Communist Party, the ANC, and the Pan-African Congress, and a commitment to engage in negotiations. A very dramatic moment. And these initiatives by the two leaders, Mandela's letter, de Klerk's speech, reflected the balance of forces. The government remained militarily powerful, but was politically weak. The liberation movement headed by the ANC was politically potent, but militarily feeble. The National Party could not impose stability from above. The opposition was unable to seize power from below. So the position that had been arrived at was what political scientists call a hurting stalemate, where the status quo is damaging to both parties, and both parties came reluctantly to this recognition. What did negotiations deliver? The broad position of the ANC and the NP when they went into it is absolutely clear. The ANC went to the table demanding universal suffrage, equal rights for all citizens, and a strong legislature. It defined the future in terms of majority rule in the unitary state. The National Party saw the future in terms of power sharing, consociation of democracy, they were talking to too many American political scientists, and consociation of democracy within a federal structure with entrenched group rights. And they actually entered negotiations convinced that they could avert what they called simple majoritarianism. Quite clearly, one set of those positions fared much better in the course of negotiations. An interim constitution signed in 1993, November 93, strongly favored the ANC's initial positions. There would be a Bill of Rights. It conferred equal rights on all citizens. Elections of all levels of government were on the basis of one person, one vote. And although nine provinces would retain certain powers, substantive power was quite clearly at the center. The main concessions made by the ANC were time-bound. These included a sunset clause, which guaranteed security of tenure in post to senior to white civil servants and also white officers in the security forces and police. It included an amnesty for officials, particularly those of the security forces, in exchange for full disclosure. It included an agreement that the first election would usher in a government of national unity with a kind of proportional representation of seats in the government um, by parties based on the election outcome. And a deal that there would be two vice presidents, one from the National Party, one from the ANC. 
so much power was conceded by the National Party that although they did win 20% of the vote in 1994, this had shrunk in 10 years to 2%, and in 2006, the party ceased to exist. That was the political outcome. But it leaves unanswered the question of what socio-economic relations the new order would promote. Did majority rule mean redistribution from the few to the many? What development path would the new state pursue? How closely would it stick to international orthodoxy? And the answers to those questions lay largely outside the negotiating chamber. Negotiations on the interim constitution were formal. Every session minuted, their details poured over, and consensus hammered out. Alongside them took a less visible, less formal set of interactions, fluid and ephemeral, which yielded, I think, not consensus, but convergence. These were discussions on the economy between economic and political elites. And by late 1993, the ANC leadership had drifted away from its base. It no longer proposed economic transformation. It no longer spoke the language of the Freedom Charter, um, but was much more concerned with economic stability and continuity. In November 1993, no, sorry, in September 93, just before the interim constitution was signed, the ANC co-signed with the NP a letter to the IMF securing a loan from the International Monetary Fund, but also committing the new regime to fiscal orthodoxy, balanced budgets, and the rest. There was a hugely important elite compromise that ruled out any left-of-center economic policies. Now, the night Mandela was released from jail, he stood on a platform in Cape Town, city center, and he read a speech written for him by a committee, and he reiterated what's in the Freedom Charter, that an ANC government would nationalize the banks and the monopolies of the land. The ANC's economic policy, which I think could at best, at most generously be described as fluid, set off from a rhetorically socialist platform, chugged briefly down a social democratic branch line, but by 1993 steamed into neoliberal central. The ANC jettisoned a social democratic alternative and left the structures of production, ownership, and income substantially intact. And in return for endorsing the capitalist status quo, the ANC won an undertaking from business to proceed with black economic empowerment, changing the, um, the complexion of boardrooms and um, having kind of hothouse growth of a black capitalist structure. In other words, the negotiated settlement combined significant restructuring of the political sphere and broad continuity in the economic sphere. Politically, the negotiation outcome was fairly radical, economically relatively conservative. And both sides of that agreement the sweeping political change and the essential continuity in economic relations were the product of a process conducted at a particular time and place. 
They reflected the balance of forces, locally and globally. I've hinted at the balance of forces locally as a kind of stalemate. Obviously, globally, the fall of the Berlin Wall had left only one system standing. The best bet for a new South Africa, argued the persuasive representatives of capital, was to join the winning side, to accept the Washington Consensus. It was a moment when the balance of forces was unfavorable to poor and marginalized citizens. Choices had shrunk. The range of options had narrowed. For the elites, it made sense to act as they did. Let me now try to think briefly but comparatively across the two cases. I'm going to do it very crudely by setting out some similarities and then some differences. Similarities include that in both cases, an authoritarian state was challenged by a broad-based popular unrest. Opposition groups in South Africa and Poland had a presence in many, many towns, in crucial industries, and across social classes. Martial law in Poland and the states of emergency in South Africa were expressions of the state's coercive power, but also admissions of the state's loss of legitimacy. In Poland, different from most of the other Eastern European cases, opposition delegates at the Roundtable Talks came from a united, well-organized, and pre-existing organization. We were reminded several times yesterday of the importance of the decade preceding um, the 89 talks. And in South Africa, too, the ANC leadership in exile had cohered for 30 years, and domestic leaders, sorry, domestic struggles had produced trade union and United Democratic Front leaders who played a central role in the negotiations. Two sets of, if you like, battle-hardened uh, negotiators. In both cases, the opposition groupings occupied the moral high ground. And I think this is reflected in the international approval of individuals like Foyensa and Mandela. Fourthly, in both cases, the regime and the opposition arrived at a recognition of the need to talk as an alternative to the status quo. And I think Remek's call for an anti-crisis pact is a kind of sotto voce, it's a, it's a lower key equivalent of Mandela's letter preceding the formal negotiations. Fifthly, once negotiations began, they had their own dynamics and their own logic. There are recognizably similar dynamics in the two cases. Negotiations, by definition, involve concessions, trade-offs, and compromises as a means to consensus. And this is clear in both cases. And I think the Magdalenka talks have acquired something of the same reputation for elite pacting as those informal meetings between big business and the ANC in the South African case. Finally, similarity, what Professor Smolov yesterday called the Gorbachev factor. The role of the Soviet Union, that context, and the accelerating changes that led to the Cold War were crucial to the context in which the talks took place. De Kerk wrote afterwards that he offered the, um, to enter negotiations because he thought the ANC had been weakened by events in the Soviet Union, and the ANC did indeed lose both 
financial support, military capacity, and I think some of its ideological moorings. <coughs> what about the differences? Firstly, there's obvious difference in the status of the two processes. The RT lasted for two months and produced no binding agreement. It did not write a new constitution or introduce political democracy, although it set in train dynamics to these ends. In South Africa, it was clear from early on that negotiations would be protracted and detailed and that they would indeed produce a new constitutional dispensation. Secondly, and correspondingly, corresponding to that first difference, the political outcomes were very different. In Poland, fluid, fractious, and unstable politics. And in particular, the fact that uh, the main opposition force, that solidarity, fell apart. In South Africa, the ANC has cohered. It has won over 60% of the vote in four consecutive general elections, between 62.7 and 69%, and it will win about 60% in May this year. In two respects, the dynamics of the Polish opposition to authoritarian rule differed from the South African case. There's no direct equivalent in South Africa of that sustained and creative role played by intelligentsia. Um, the, the, you know, the creation of an underground press, mobilization of ideas as well as people. And equally, there's no South African equivalent of the role played by the Catholic Church in Poland. And I'm thinking both of its function as a broker to the talks, but more especially its ability to endorse mobilization, to rally large numbers of people, its virtual monopoly of, of symbolic discourses, and its contribution to nationalism and, I suppose, to, to, to nation-building. There is a kind of equivalence, perhaps, between um, Pope John Paul and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, both of whom are seen as broadly supportive of the opposition, but I think I wouldn't push it further than that. Fourthly, although COSATU, Congress of South African Trade Unions, and solidarity were mass-based trade union umbrella movements, the post-negotiation treatment of organized labor has been very different in the two cases. In South Africa, there was an explicitly corporatist arrangement which conferred on the trade union movement a formal role in a tripartite structure, business, government, and, and the unions called NEDBAC and a major informal role as a component of the Triple Alliance, ANC, Communist Party, and COSATU. And there clearly is no corresponding role for trade unions in um, Poland over the last 25 years. Tungarten Ash yesterday evening mentioned the absence in Poland of any equivalent to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and a corresponding lack of catharsis or moral resolution. Yes, that is the case, that there was the absence, but I think it's important not to overstate the extent to which the Truth TRC achieved that in South Africa. It's important to recognize its compromised nature. It was a late-cut deal in the negotiations process. It was spelled out in a postamble to the uh, interim constitution 
and is essentially a trade-off of amnesty um, to keep amnesty for disclosure um, to keep the security forces on board. Um, it, many felt that subsequently it achieved neither truth nor reconciliation. Finally, the biggest difference between the two cases is the economic outcome. Drastic change in the Polish case as the command economy was dismantled in favor of radical free market monetarism, the embrace of externally applied shock therapy. In South Africa, an existing capitalist economy was, if anything, strengthened by the negotiations. The main change after 1994 was that it shifted further towards radical free market monetarism and internally imposed shock therapy. Thanks very much.